Welcome to CAA Conversations. My name is Steve Rossi. I'm an assistant professor and sculpture program head at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. In this recording, I'm speaking with Lynn Godley on the topic of considering light, form, and space from a studio art and design perspective with a healthcare context in mind. Lynn is a full professor of industrial design at Thomas Jefferson University, where she is developing a cross-disciplinary curricula in lighting design with a focus on light as experience. She is also the director of the Jefferson Center of Immersive Arts for Health, an initiative to investigate the impact of dynamic light and interactive art on health. She has spoken at national and international conferences on these topics along with lighting design education. In addition to her academic work, she also is a multimedia artist. Her designs, done individually and as a partner of Godly Schwann, have been exhibited internationally and are in numerous international museums and private collections, including the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Since 2000, her studio work has focused on merging light and art in the relationship between art, technology, and its impact on the viewer. Her studio practice is linked to her research through integrating dynamic light in artwork that can create a deeper engagement by affecting both the environment and, ultimately, the user. So, Lynn, could you describe your creative practice and, and your research interests? Sure. Thanks, Steve. Um I've I've had a creative practice for as long as I recall. It's like I've always had a studio. And so my creative work that's coming out of my studio, it's fine art. It all incorporates light in some way, um, you know, whether it's feeding fiber optics through imagery or doing digital projection mapping or working with LEDs. Um, but I'm also really interested in what the work does what's the experience for the viewer. And so, so my work is really connected to kind of my interest in science and user experience and, and that whole realm, which, you know, is kind of always having had one foot in design and one foot in art. Hmm. Um, that, does that, is that clear? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's clear. And um, it was interesting for me getting familiar with your work through the most recent Philadelphia Open Studio tour, which is when I had a chance to come through and tour your studio and just see kind of like the varied approaches, the interdisciplinary approaches that you were bringing, work, working with objects, working with two-dimensional work, working with these immersive um, installations, uh, both in your studio and then also in a, a public art context. Um, I just I just thought that like on that that visit, there was so much that you and I had a chance would would have in common that uh, I'm I'm grateful for this opportunity to kind of delve into some of these topics a little bit more. Um, so, as an artist who works with light myself, and as someone who incorporates light into sculpture classes, it's interesting to consider the crossover between industrial design and sculpture. Um, could you talk talk a little bit about your approach to working with light with students? Sure. Well, number one, I'm obsessed with light, so it makes it a lot easier. And to do that in that I can use the lighting as sort of a, a topic that we pull in all of the other skill sets around, such as, you know, we do a project um, with lighting with the sophomore industrial design studio, but using light as sort of an umbrella over a whole semester they learn how to improve their CAD skills because they're going to be 3D printing part of the light. They can, we can talk about sustainability because lighting has a lot to do with, you know, the materials that you're using and energy use. And it's like, it's not just a material, but it's actually pulling energy as well. 
Um, we can also take a look at things such as business models and how you would go about creating, you know, making a product that's viable. Also, in design, we talk a lot about user experience. There's not that many products that you design that when you turn it on, it totally changes the experience of the space. And so and under the umbrella of lighting, we get to improve the skill sets on a pretty wide range. So that's like the major design studio that I teach. And then I do a lot of um, elective courses on lighting, um, more in terms of lighting as experience. So we do one that is light as public experience where they're doing large scale lighting installations, whether it's with, you know, big programmable color kinetics sort of equipment, like what they use on the Empire State Building, or we're using digital projection mapping to do fully immersive spaces with the intention of creating an intentional experience, right? Mm. So the students are able to do this and then actually have people come through the space to see what that experience, how that works out. We do have a luminaire design class, which is more product design oriented. Um, we do a light and health class, which talks a lot about sort of what are the psychological and physiological impacts of light on the body. And then how do we, again, intentionally use that, you know, to make places healthier for, for whoever is there. My, I have a cousin, um, a, a family member that is um, in the um, industrial design field. And I've, over the years, I've seen a lot of the different types of product design um, initiatives that his company has has been working on in different ways. And I was curious of, um, to hear, is um, light as part of an industrial design um, curriculum, is that fairly common in the field or is that kind of unique to Jefferson University? I think that an awful lot of design programs do a lamp or a luminaire at some point. It's it's just another product, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I know a lot of people, whether whether it's architecture, interior design, or product design, that actually will have the students do a light um, of some sort, task light, decorative light, or whatever. Like you're kind of doing like a really deep dive into. Yeah, life. that's unusual. Yeah, and what's unusual is that we're not we're not really doing a quote unquote lighting design curriculum because the, the field of lighting design is usually found in architecture interior design. And it's, it's interested in how many foot candles or lux of light, you know, mm -hmm. get onto a surface so that you can do the task that you're supposed to do in that space. Mm -hmm. We're really approaching it more from a user experience approach, which is common in industrial design of how does this product, what is the relationship between the product and the user? And whether that we're doing a fully immersive experience and in, inside of a chapel or we're doing a task lamp, you know, it's really looking at it in terms of we're creating an experience. Mm -hmm. And it's so yeah. interesting what you said earlier too about the way that like a, a product like a lamp has its ability to transform the space that's surrounding it in such a yeah profound way and that there really aren't that many products that function no. that way. I think that's a real no, I mean you can turn on a stove, it heats up, but it's not really changing the room, right? Yeah. yeah. Chair is a chair, right? But a, a light, right? You walk into the room and you change the light. And now that we have programmable lighting that can change color, it can be static or it can be dynamic. Mm -hmm. I mean you can have multiple light sources so that you can kind of change the mood of a room as you walk mm -hmm. in and, and 
depending on what what tasks are taking place, you know, it really has that ability. And now that we know that in addition to kind of a visual and psychological impact of the light, that it actually has a physiological impact on the body because of the wavelength, it's a whole other mm-hmm. area to think about in terms mm-hmm. of how are we using this object, right, that that puts out light, which seems very kind of ethereal, but, you know, we're, we're learning so much more about its impact on us. How do you use that in a way that you're creating spaces that are healthy? Yeah, and I think that that leads us into the, um, the next question in the relationship of um, uh, light to a healthcare environment. But I wanted, before we get into that, I have uh, one more question related to how you're working with light with students. And I was just curious, like you'd mentioned 3D printing. So you're covering kind of digital fabrication and AutoCAD. And I was curious if you, if you end up spending much time on the coding side for like programmable LED lighting, or if if, do students kind of work that out on their own and then bring that to a project or just how do you address that? And no, we, we teach that we teach, teach, you know, in, in sophomore year, they're introduced to Arduino, which is microcomputing. And, you know, it's when you're teaching anybody Arduino, one of the quickest things to do is make a LED blink, right? And then you mm-hmm. can make multiple LED blinks and then blinking, and then you can have them change the color. And so, you know, it's a good way to get them started on code. Now, I don't think it's important that everybody become an expert coder. I mean, I can code, but I'm not an expert. I'm not great at it, but I, I know enough to be able to make something do what I want it to do if it goes much further. I go out and I get help, right? Mm-hmm. Like anybody. Yeah. And so so the students, they do need to understand that most of the products that they design will be interactive in some way because it's becoming so typical, right? And kind of expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if they're not the one coding it, they're designing the product, they need to understand what are the components that are going to need to be in that package. Mm -hmm. And how do you design for where those components live and interact with each other, let alone the user. Mm -hmm. So yes, we do do a bit of um, coding. um, Because the 3D printing, you're creating the object, right? And depending on the materials that you're using to print, it can be opaque, it can be transparent. Um, it also forces them to get better at some fabricating skills rather than just making it by hand. Mm-hmm. But then but then on top of that, they have to be aware of what is the light doing inside of that package, right? Is it just on off? Is it dimming and you know getting brighter? Is it changing mm-hmm. colors? So yeah, the coding, the coding is a big part of it. And then, um, and I think it's really fascinating to think about light as a material too, right? As a sculptural material. Um, and when, are, when you're thinking about how light travels through a material, um, not just the light itself, but the way that um, a material can have the ability to be translucent, can be opaque, um, different material qualities, textures, shadows. Do you have, do you direct kind of when you're, say, students are designing, trying to design like a a, a unique version of a lampshade in some, some case, um, are you sort of providing materials in a class context that students are then experimenting with or are the students going out and sort of grabbing their own materials or how do how do you shape that part i think both i think you know because most of the students come in they and they don't know any of this right and so when you talk about how light either transmits through a material or reflects off of a material or is absorbed by a material or all of the ways that that light interacts with mm-hmm. other surfaces or through other surfaces 
you know, when you first talk about that, their eyes are just glazing over because they have no idea. And so I do bring in a lot of things. And then and then you talk about, you know, using light and how do you mix the color? Well, if I have a, a cylinder of paper and I cut some holes in it, I put an RGB light inside there, inside the cylinder, the light is white because the RGB are mixing. Mm. But as it comes through those holes, it's splitting the light. So everything outside of the cylinder is split into red, blue, green, right? Mm. And so, so they start to understand by actually making, right? And seeing what happens, mm-hmm. how light interacts. Uh, and, and it is interesting because a lot of times in industrial design, students never get off of CAD or their sketchbook, right? They never have to actually build something because they end up with this beautiful render of something. Mm-hmm. You can't render light, mm-hmm. right? You mm-hmm. have to make something that you can try the light out in what is the lamp source because all lamp sources when i say lamp it's the the light the light source right like what would be considered a bulb or an led but all of them put out different color temperatures or different color or different intensities and they're powered by different types of drivers and so it's important for the students to be able to test out a lot and so we have built up a pretty good library in our in our department as far as different types of light sources that they can use whether it's a pinpoint or an array or whatever so that they can see the difference right because mm. otherwise they they go to the store they buy the first thing that they see on the shelf right and that's yeah, it yeah yeah and so so it's yeah it's 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 pretty broad so that they can experiment mm-hmm. there's a there's a project that i do in one of my sculpture classes where i frame the project as an illuminated sculpture and um, and so I, I showed the students essentially like how to create, we, we do it around sheet metal fabrication. So we're working with like a three in one machine and a, a break and a shear and pop rivets. And we're framing the project around polyhedron forms uh, mm-hmm. that exist in nature and using that as kind of a jumping off point. Um, but then I, I've sort of provided a couple different options as far as um, translucency materials go. Um, like we're working with very kind of straightforward materials like tracing paper and plexiglass and working with that just as like a, a very sort of straightforward kind of a way. But I like the idea too, that students could potentially, you could open it up even more and students would be sort of um, scouring their own environment to try to find materials and experimenting with materials to get different lighting effects that way. Um, you know, we, so- we used to do a project like that where they, they would get a bulb, right? When it was, we were using a standard Edison E26 socket with a light bulb in it, right? And and then they had to build something around that. They could play with any materials because I really wanted them to explore, you know, how light transfers through materials or off of whatever. And some of them were just absolutely beautiful. One one student um, got Neutrogena bars of soap, the glycerin bars, mm-hmm. and stacked them into like this box where it was like different layers of it and then turned the light on, right? And it was absolutely beautiful, the amber glow and how it changed depending on how many layers of, of the soap there was. Someone did one where he used cabbage leaves and lit oh, that yeah. from behind. And the yeah, whole shade was like, it looked like a big cabbage, but how the light came through. I've had students who have used prosciutto, right? Where it comes through all the marbling of the veins. I mean, so so those can be very fun. They're, they're very experimental. Very few of those are gonna last long, right? But um, it was it's a good way to get students to explore because I'm teaching sophomores. They, they don't have a huge vocabulary of what materials might work. And so when mm-hmm. you just throw the doors totally wide open, mm-hmm. 
you know, a lot of it is like, what did they dig out of the trash can that morning? Because they forgot to do the project, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but even then, you know, it's like, yeah. you know, crumpled paper can make a really beautiful shade. Right, exactly. Um, and and it's it just reminds me of like another interesting connection between industrial design and sculpture where what you're describing with cabbage and prosciutto as like, you know, sculptural elements that don't have that um, have an intentionally short lifespan or like yeah. they're so, sort of celebrating like the ephemeral nature of a sculptural material. Mm -hmm. So there's mm -hmm. just these interesting, interesting overlaps. Um, all right. So we touched on um, uh, light in, in a healthcare context just a little bit, but can you tell us a little bit more about your institution's healthcare connections and how that context has led you to think about immersive public art in a healthcare setting? Sure. So I'm going I'm to talk about two things. So first off with my studio practice, you know, I, I come from art and then I did design, industrial design and furniture and lighting and that sort of thing for about 20 years and then came back to art. And I had had an exhibit where, you know, we had filled this gallery with all these images, birds in flight and fed fiber optics through it. And the the response was the curator called me a couple of weeks into the into the show and said that people were coming in and behaving strangely. They were sitting on the floor and just being there for up to three hours and coming back multiple times. They weren't talking to each other. And that really got my attention that something else was going on in terms of the experience. So that was 2011. And I spent a lot of time doing research on what might be happening and found out a lot about how art impacts the viewer as well as different types of nature-based art or fractals, all that sort of thing. And then we looked at the light and it had to do with the wavelength, that it was the same wavelength as is used in light therapy a lot. And so, hmm. so that for me really got me interested in like how, how could we use this artwork that has light in it as sort of therapy, right? And so the university that I'm at used to be Philadelphia University, which is a predominantly design-based um, university and, you know, industrial design, graphic design, textile design, architecture, um, no fine art per se. It's all applied design. And about four or five years ago, I guess, um, we merged with Thomas Jefferson University, which is a huge medical institution. And, and it's also linked to Jefferson Health which is at this point, I think we're in 19 hospital systems. So it's a huge healthcare network, right? Well, both with the university and with this. And so it has opened up a lot of opportunities for us to collaborate with healthcare and have the students take more classes or do more work where they're actually designing based on real research in healthcare um, and then able to prototype anything from prosthetics to lighting to, you know, um, uh, medicine delivery sort of apparatus that that can be tested. Okay. And so that's been really fascinating because it makes it real, right? It's mm -hmm. no longer, well, I think it's really cool and it makes me calm down that it really puts you into kind of that vocabulary of how research on human beings is done and how what what is legitimate and what's not so mm -hmm. i think i think it's been a really great opportunity for the students who are interested in actually testing their designs since we've merged and and you've started to um kind of track the data of people that are visiting some of your exhibitions too right and and thinking about that from the perspective of like actually getting collecting data from People that are, <clears throat> excuse me, people that are visiting an exhibition and, and like asking the viewer specifically, like, 
to reflect back on what their viewing experience was like and what, what if any no, um, changes did they notice in their own, in their own um, physiology? Is that, is that correct? Yeah, well, it is. And it's been really, really exciting and fascinating because, you know, up until this point, I'm, I've been kind of walking around going, well, I know it does something because these people in Germany behave weird and strangely not weird. And um, so through this, this collaboration, you know, and I'll talk a little bit later about the Center of Immersive Arts for Health, um, we've been able to set up a research team and they actually are the ones that create surveys for the participants to take part in. And, and because they're researchers, they know what you're allowed to ask and what you're not allowed to ask and what has meaning, right, in terms of a question. And so we had an exhibit of 11 different installations that were using dynamic light in some way um, to create immersive experience about a year and a half ago, I guess it was. And we had surveys that were attached to each of these installations. There was seating with each installation. And we had about 200 people take part in those surveys. It was, you know, simple questions. How long did you sit and engage with this piece, you know, how would you describe it as somebody else? That sort of thing. And overwhelmingly, people said that they felt calmer by mm. sitting with the work and engaging with it, um, more introspective, more at peace. Um, there was there was one piece that did not get that reaction, but I think it was because it was in a smaller, darker room than the other pieces were. The speed of the light change was a little faster contrast was a little higher mm -hmm. and so so that was really it was just really interesting to start getting some feedback about it and so since then we've done one other project where we did um surveys and that one we're still piling through all the data to kind of decode what we got back but overwhelmingly the responses were really good in terms of this fully immersive experience and that one, we actually did a pre-survey and post-survey so that we could gauge the difference between when people, before they went into this experience and after they came out. Mm -hmm. And then we've got another large um, study that will start this, this spring. Um, and that one's actually going to be in a healthcare environment, which is good because the, the one that was at the gallery, it was great. Mm. But how stressed are people at a gallery? Whereas we know in waiting rooms, you're stressed, yeah. right? right? No one goes to a waiting room and just feels happy, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. um, so I think that that one will be really interesting to start getting the data back in as far as what is the response. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. Um, and also interesting that you mentioned the institutional merger um, that your, uh, that your uh, university went through. Because I'm teaching at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia and St. Joseph's uh, recently merged with the University of the Sciences. Um, and that merger brought in a lot of healthcare related fields um, into the university's um, course offerings. And so the art department, we and we were trying to be strategic about like, how could we um, position the art department in such a way so that we would be kind of part of that merger um, uh, conversation at the university. And so one project that I did in a studio art context was um, I, I um, reached out to a colleague in the um, uh, um, originally U Sciences and now St. Joseph's University uh, Occupational Therapy Department to see if there was interest in a collaborative idea around the um, uh, focus of um, prosthetics and sort of thinking about like how could studio artists 
um, address a prosthetic solution a little differently than how an occupational therapy um, student would do it? And what are the similarities? What are the differences in our creative processes and, and also in our design iteration? And so we used it as an opportunity for both fields, essentially, to sort of share their research. My, my students were sharing their sketchbook drawings, their thumbnail sketches, the screenshots from the um, uh, from their Tinkercad files that they were using and um, to create these sort of 3D printed prosthetic solutions. And then the occupational therapy students were doing the same thing, essentially. They were showing um, my students their Tinkercad files that they were creating. Um, and the, the, the difference in both of our approaches was that the, the studio art students were really thinking about aesthetics, whereas the occupational therapy students were really thinking about um, practical functional solutions that would be more for like object modification. So like, how could you redesign a doorknob to work um, if you didn't have an opposable thumb, you know, or like, how could you de design a device that would allow a person to string together like a button mm -hmm. um, uh, or work together a um, work together a zipper, uh, so things like that, that would be a challenge. Um, and the the real value that the the studio artists brought to the to the um, conversation was that we were really thinking about aesthetics from kind of like from the start, not so much about function. And uh, one of the things that was um, that the Linda Lemish, who was my colleague in the occupational therapy department, had pointed out was that quite often there's a high rate of abandonment with um, prosthetics devices because people just aren't connected to them or they, they look, they're trying to look so lifelike that they're, um, that people find them to be sort of distracting and they'll actually choose to not use them rather than to wear this sort of creepy half flesh tone device. Um, and so for, um, for the occupational therapy students to sort of see ways that we were working with different colors in our, uh, 3d printed filaments, um, and, and just sort of thinking about relate, um, formal relationships of like color pattern, texture, positive space and negative space from an aesthetic point of view. I think we, we were able to have a really, a really kind of valuable conversation there. So it was another example of like the way the healthcare course offerings where we were able to kind of like find these interesting starting points. And I was able to connect it back to these different art historical uh, precedents related to kind of performance art related. Um, and I brought in uh, Rebecca Horn and Nick Cave and, and a lot of other, the whole tradition of like wearable sculpture and even um, within the jewelry, jewelry tradition where people are really thinking expansively about like how an object can be worn on the body and thinking about the body as a site. So it brought in all these different connections for a, um, for a studio art class that I never would have imagined had the institution not had these kind of healthcare um, departments uh, to partner with. For the next interdisciplinary connection that I'll be doing with this project, I'll be partnering with Mercer Gary, a colleague teaching in the Department of English and Philosophy at Drexel University. We'll be developing connections related to disability justice and bodily autonomy. Well, I think it's really it's really great to do that both for your students and the others, right? It's like one of the one of the things I love about the work that we're doing and you know, even the team that I have of researchers and designers, it's like it's different fields and we're coming to the table together, mm -hmm. right? And so so everybody kind of has to give up the idea of being the smartest guy in the room because yeah. everybody's speaking a different language, right? Yeah. And so yeah. being able to sit down and respect each other is, mm -hmm. is really critical. But, you know, what you're saying about, you know, having artists as part of the conversation, I mean, that's where art always pushes the envelope. Right. It's, it's mm -hmm. what artists do, you know, and so I think that 
what happens then is that you quit thinking about the user as a patient and think about them as a customer. I mean, yeah. we had no problem wearing big earbuds or whatever. It's things in our ears to listen to music. And yet you look at a hearing aid and how they try to make it flesh colored and it's it's looks like you're 90 years old or something. And nobody wants to use them, but we don't care about having big colorful things hanging off of our ears, right? Yep. And so so how do we start mixing that? Because I really do think that working across disciplines mm -hmm. um, and having the conversations that kind of break that that kind of silo focus, right? Is how we're going to come up with better solutions. Yeah, we we ended up having sort of like the per perfect test case for this project to start with. Um, there was an artist named uh, John Powers um, who lost his thumb and his uh, ring finger of his left hand in a table saw accident. And he put out um, a, a call to artists and designers, uh, friends of his, to think about um, designing creative prosthetic solutions so that, as he put it, like he could always choose... If he was going to a dinner party, he'd always be able to have a different thumb to put on that night. Um, and so for him, like he actually met, met with our class and he met with the students for like in-process studio critiques. And it was really nice because, you know, as the person, as, as the patient, in a sense, that needed a prosthetic device, he was really able to give the students permission, especially the art students permission to really think outside the box and really think about it from a creative aesthetic angle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like that the one the um, model Amy Mullins, who's a Pennsylvania born, and you know she's I remember her. She came to our school one time and talked, and um, you know she said that she'd go into a modeling agency and they'd be like, "Well, how tall are you?" And she'd say, "How tall do you want me to be?" You know, mm -hmm. make that prosthetic. You know, because she had lost both of her legs at the knee, yes. and so yeah, thinking of it not as a disability but an opportunity. Right? Exactly as an opportunity, yeah. And that created so many opportunities to then think about like the body as a site too. Yeah. And, yeah, and exactly. then, yeah. you know, we've expanded the the sculpture sort of off the pedestal back to, back to the, the viewer's body and the wearer's body. And that for that, especially at like an intro level sculpture class, that ends up being a fairly radical concept for students. What a to wonderful way to put that, getting it off the pedestal, you know, because the arts, the arts didn't start on a pedestal. The art started as part of our lives, right? Yeah, and objects yeah. and wearables and ritual objects were things that were part of our lives. And somewhere along the line, art became so removed mm -hmm. from our lives and also became this really expensive commodity that most people, you know, just say they don't understand anymore. But mm -hmm. how do we bring that back into being part of our lives that has value? Right, right. right. Yeah, that's a really interesting connection to make right there too, where it's yeah. not the the art making and the art experience is not necessarily separate, right? They're right. kind of one and the same, essentially. Yeah. There's that book that just came out. I know you and I have talked about it, um, Your Brain on Art by Susan mm -hmm. Magsiman and Ivy Ross. And it's, it's an amazing read for anybody who's interested in the arts as far as how valuable the arts are whether you're making art or even just doodling can decrease your stress level by like 60%. It was crazy. Or whether you're, you're taking part in the art activity or you're viewing the work, right. And how we need the arts, right. In our lives. And so, so I do think it's, it's interesting, this whole conversation of how do we move from thinking about the art as this really precious commodity to how does art become part of our lives mm -hmm. again? Right, right. right.
Yeah, really, really interesting question right there. Um, all right, so um, just moving on, uh, you touched on it a little bit. Uh, could you tell the listeners a little bit about the um, the Jefferson Center of Immersive Arts for Health and the 2002 Immersive Arts for Health Student Design Competition? Sure. So, so it's been a few years now. We I opened this up, and what had happened was that the at that time the president of Jefferson Health um, had come to my studio and he knew the work I was doing and had asked if I could come in and do some big um, sorry for the someone's cutting something in another studio um, so he had asked if I could do some big scale uh, commissions and which would have been great financially but um, you know I'm looking at it going you know what would be more interesting to me is how about we first build some sort of way to research the impact and then you start commissioning the work, right? So that we know what it's going to do. And so that really got this whole idea of, of what would that look like? And because I'm so involved in work that is dynamic in some way, um, mm -hmm. you call it new media work because basically all of new media work is dynamic light, right? In some way, whether it's VR or projection mapping or LEDs, whatever, mm -hmm. it's all light that is changing in some way, whether it's on a screen or not. And so I opened up, started put together this Jefferson Center of Immersive Arts for Health, where we're looking at how can we use work that is dynamic in some way, most of all using light, and use it to create an experience that could be beneficial for well-being. Um, and so it, we, it, it is now this platform where we develop curriculum, we work across it so that we're teaching students how to do this, we're working across departments and other universities, connecting kind of the design process and the prototyping with research so that mm -hmm. we can actually test things. Mm -hmm. So so that's been a kind of a nice platform from which to do other projects, like some of the ones that we talked about earlier, like in the chapel and and the competition, because um, it helps sponsor those things. It also helps connect me with other institutions. So the, the 2022 student design competition, what we did was, and this was part of that exhibition that we did that we actually first tested the response, is we put out a call to universities around the globe, because I really love big unwieldy projects, um, for the students to use research, like real research that's been peer reviewed and published, um, to come up with some sort of idea for something that could be used in a waiting room, some sort of dynamic work that could be used in a waiting room uh, that could be good for well-being, could calm people down. Um, and so so there are certain criteria there. It, it can't, it's not a gallery. You can't turn off all the other lights. So it has to function in a space that's going to have other lighting on it. It can't take over the whole space because other things have to take place in a waiting room. So, so it was nice that it had certain parameters that the students had to kind of conform to, mm -hmm. but also they had to base their hypothesis for the design on real research. And then mm -hmm. um, out of that, we had we had entries from I don't know thirteen or fifteen different universities across eight continents or something like that um we so, so interesting to use the waiting room as as the site essentially and and all of the different sort of um contexts that a waiting room brings right where you have sort of a cap you have a captive audience they're not necessarily an art viewing audience everybody's a little bit anxious and so there's, there's sort of this built-in uh premise essentially almost a, almost yeah, a call demographic. too yeah yeah in, in terms of like a project brief right like how how can we calm this population down how can we sort of do something to meet this need 
that we all share when well, we're in well, the environment. The other thing to keep in mind is that I think that it was um, James Terrell who was talking about his work, which is all of these big immersive experiences, that you need to commit time in order to have an immersive experience. You're not, nothing's going to happen if you just walk past it in a hallway, right? And so, so to put these pieces in a space where people are stuck, right? And it can be anywhere from 15 minutes to hours that people mm -hmm. are sitting in these waiting rooms. Mm -hmm. It's the perfect opportunity for an intervention, right? And yeah. so, so I think that, the, you know, you know, and then and then you can get into all of the other discussion around, well, what is, is it an emergency room? Is it pediatric, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But, you know, it, it made for a good site, you know, yeah. to start off with. Yeah, really, really interesting there. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the, the some of the work that you did with the Raven Hill Chapel and the sure. production mapping that you were doing there? Yeah, so that was that was a course. The course lighting is public experience, where we do large scale, kind of um, immersive experience things. And we took over a chapel on our campus. It's a beautiful little chapel, and we used about nine nine projectors, I think it was. And the the idea again was the students worked with student health services services, um, as well as you know our research team, which is you know the the one of the women there is head of behavioral medicine. She's a psychologist. Another woman is head of population health, so she really deals with how do you how what kind of interventions can you do that can change behavior. So one of the other researchers was head of the Center of Autism and Neurodiversity. And so the idea was to create an immersive experience. And everybody's been to these Van Gogh experiences and that sort of things, which mostly is entertainment, right? But could we create an experience with the intention that it would calm people down? And so the students did a lot of research and found you know, different types of imagery, nature-based imagery, colors, speeds, sounds that, that you know, have been proven to relax people. And they created the fully immersive experience in the space. It was absolutely breathtaking. It was really beautiful. Do and we had. Oh, do, do you talk about sort of biophilic design and and? Yep. Um, design yep. Well, they find that they they go out. I don't I don't give it to them. I mean, they oh, had to okay. go out and, okay. and dig up the research and and you know I'll I'll give them like clues like find mm -hmm. it's like I can say nature does this stuff, but then they would have to bring the papers in to say okay. here's the paper that proved this right because oh. none of it. We really insist that it's based on research, right? So they can't say, well, my teacher told me this happens, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, so they would have to find the papers that prove that have proven that fractals, looking at fractals calms people down or biophilic mm -hmm. design calms people down and lowers their amount of time in hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of it was based on peer reviewed research. And then they create this experience it was open for three nights towards the end of the semester, which is when the student anxiety level is pretty high. Mm -hmm. We had, um, I don't I don't know how many people, we probably had over 300 people come through the space, but we had just under 200 that completed both the pre-survey and the post-survey because mm -hmm. we only are using the surveys where they took part in both, okay? Mm -hmm. If they did the pre-survey and then threw the post-survey away before they left, you know, we didn't count them as part of it. Um, and overwhelmingly, the, the responses have been pretty mind blowing, you know, as far as the result and how people, they really felt more at ease or more relaxed after spending time there. And we did bring a group of um, 
it was from, I think, oh, I'm going to guess at this. I think the youngest was around eight years old and up till maybe 30 years old, a group of uh, people on spectrum. Okay. Uh, and, you know, some of them were really bouncing off the walls when they walked into the space. Some stayed for up to an hour and a half. Some came with their parents and all of them, it brought them down a bit. It calmed them down a bit so that, so that it was a pretty drastic yeah. shift. Now we haven't gone through all of the data yet from those surveys. We start looking at that next week. Um, so over the next couple of months, we'll be plowing through all of that and put together some sort of paper, hopefully by the end of the semester. Mm -hmm. And so the the chapel was some, was a space that existed on campus and you were sort of activating it through projection mapping. And at the end of the semester, this was a space that was just open, like four students could kind of come in mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We use it as a space to kind of wind down, decompress, and yeah. then make their way out. So it was just kind of it was kind of just there for them, essentially. Yeah. yeah, it was open for about three hours on three different evenings. Okay. And um we are talking with the university. We we had quite a few people from the university higher up. The president even came to see what it was. And and um so we are talking with a number of people about the possibility of doing something like this that would be permanent right Interesting. because not only for the students but for the healthcare staff right right and right so, yeah. so you know that that's there's the possibility my feeling is let's get through the research okay and get that taken care of and then hopefully next year we'll start talking about you know, how do we look for funding to do something that's more ongoing, right? Because mm -hmm. it also functions as a really great laboratory for both the students to design the space and for researchers to look at different applications. Like, mm -hmm. you know? yeah, because if it doesn't work, we can change it. We can change the imagery. We can change the speed. We can change the sound. I mean, a lot of people said, how do I get my hand on the playlist? Right. Because oh, right, the right. music was really wonderful. One of the students put together a, a playlist for the whole night. And that was that was really beautiful, even like had crickets in there and stuff, you know, so it brought in more nature. Yeah. But um, it was it was exciting. And then this this spring we're installing into, like I said earlier, into nine different installations that will be projection mapping. So they're all immersive um, and in nine waiting rooms in the new Honickman building that's opening up this spring. So, and there will be ongoing research on that as well. So we're, you know, that'll be the third study. So we're slowly gathering, you know, enough data to say something's going on here. And with the, with the hope that then we can start going after some grants where you can start to look at what exactly is happening and whether you're using EGs or, you know, whatever kind of, you know, kind of, um, body kind of response uh, data that you can collect, as well as different types of interactivity. Because right now we're creating these dynamic experiences, but they're not interactive. They're just, they're set, right? But okay. it's possible to do something where someone could come into a space, such as, you know, once you get out of the main waiting room and then you go into another room and you sit there for another hour waiting for the doctor, mm -hmm. you could actually control it, right? So that you could make it slower or faster. You could change the colors or the imagery. And so all of that is possible, but for that, you do need funding to start putting those sort of projects together right. and to do more, more testing in terms of what, is the kind of body response. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And one last question on sort of on uh, projection mapping before we wrap up, I was just curious, how much time do you spend kind of getting students familiar with that, with that software before they're kind of like ready to go and like work in the space? 
Oh, not much. They're, no. they're really, they're, they pick it up really fast. Most of the students that I have, you know, they're, they're juniors or seniors or grad students. And so they've all been doing software of some sort, you know, mm -hmm. and projection mapping, um, you know, it's not that complicated. It's, you know, getting, getting used to creating all the different layers. Right. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, so, so, you know, we use Mad Mapper mostly. There's a few others that we've used in the past. Right now we're using Mad Mapper until someone designs another software that's easier to use than that. Um, and so, so they, the, the students are really good at picking up and running with it. And it's funny because I use projection mapping in my studio and every time I teach the course, I learn something new because the students keep pushing it, Yeah, you know, yeah. go after, because I, I use it to do exactly what I need, but you know, I'm not, I'm not mapping three-dimensional objects. I'm mapping two-dimensional spaces. And so, right. um, so it's, it, it, yeah, they don't, they seem to be able to run with it pretty quickly. So that's always a couple of weeks and they're up and running. Yeah. And that's always exciting to sort of introduce a tool that somebody's going to use in a class in a way that you don't even imagine it being used. Oh yeah. I always find yeah. those really exciting moments. Yeah, it was great. It was really good. Yeah. Well, Lynn, thank you so much for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's nice. It's nice to follow up on this. It was fun when you showed up at the studio, you know, and get to know you. And then I bumped into you at that one talk downtown. Yeah. yeah. But, but uh, no, this is great. And hopefully it will be of some help to someone out there who's interested in doing this kind of work. Yes, definitely. Thanks. Thanks again. Okay. Really okay. Thank you.